Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Shut up and sit down. All right, everybody, we are back. Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Uh, a day or so late because of um, the holidays and getting everything together, but great podcast for you today. This one's going to be the last one for this year. We'll be back um, after the first of the year, uh, just because of the way that the holidays are are, are falling. But I uh, just want to say thank you to everybody that's been following along with the podcast and all the friends that we've made over this past year, and we can't wait to you know, see what 2020 is going to bring. A lot of, a lot of big things happening. I hope, uh, we got a few things in the works and, uh, you know, another big cookout at the total archery challenge and, um, putting together a couple things here locally. Um, and then trying to get our streaming up and running. But, you know, just want to say thank you to everybody that follows along with the show, all the new listeners, all the Patreons, you know, um, hopefully, you know, you're getting more out of this too uh, with our, our giveaways and stuff. You know, we've got, you know, right after the first of the year, probably uh, right around the time the, the next podcast comes out, we'll be doing that giveaway for that full saddle hunting kit. So um, just really, really appreciate you guys. You know, you directly uh influence um you know the the moving forward of this show um we've got uh, a new webcam up um uh, so we're going to be getting that integrated into doing some more video podcasts and some lighting to get to make things a little bit better for our videos um got more videos up on the youtube uh, all that is is directly because of the the patreons and thank you guys so much um this week's podcast, uh, we are talking uh, a little bit of traditional archery, uh, something that we haven't really scratched the surface on at all. And uh, we got a great guest, Jim Eckout, a uh, very accomplished traditional bow hunter, uh, traveled all over the country, all over the world, um, hunting just about everything. So we figured we'd start it off with uh, uh, on, a, on a really, really good note uh, with us diving into 
traditional archery. Jim, we talk a little bit about his 40 plus year streak in Michigan, um, killing a deer every single year. Uh, where to start if you wanted to start into the traditional archery, kind of how to navigate that, where, where to start, you know, who to talk to, that sort of thing. And then we get into, uh, Jim's been going to Alaska for over 25 years on a lot of DIY uh, hunts and over a, a bunch of different species of game. Um, so we talked to him a little bit about how to start that process and planning a hunt to Alaska. I feel like Alaska for many people is one of those once in a lifetime hunts. And, uh, you know, Jim's been doing it for, you know, 25 years plus, you know, sometimes a couple times a year. And then he also did, um, uh, nostalgic, like throwback hunt this year. Uh, it was the 60th anniversary of a Fred bear hunt and they went to the same, uh, area hunted with the same equipment and some of Fred bears actual gear that he owned and used. Um, so we talk a little bit about that as well. So, uh, we literally just scratched the surface with Jim. I can't wait to sit down and talk to him again because off air, we talked about so many other cool hunts that he's been on and so many things that he's encountered. Um, you know, hopefully we'll get to talk with him, you know, in person, we'll get to meet him down at the, uh, traditional, uh, bow hunting expo down in Kalamazoo at the end of January. So really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, it's a really, really great episode. Thanks to Jim for, uh, coming on and, and can't wait to talk to him again. And then, uh, just a little bit about that, uh, our Patreon giveaway that's going to be going on, like I said, through the next podcast. So right after the first of the year, we'll draw the winner for that. And that's every, everybody that's, um, signed up and is that a Patreon, um, by January 1st. So anybody that signs up through January 1st is going to be entered in to win that full saddle uh, hunting kit. That's from a full ambush pro from trophy line. And that's the, all of the tethers, lineman's belt, everything that you need to, um, you know, for the saddle, a set of muddy pro climbing sticks, and then the artisan outdoor fabrications top stick platform that I've been using and raving about all year. Uh, one of those as well. So everything that you need to, to get into saddle hunting, basically for a $5 raffle ticket. So somebody's going to win that. And then that money, you know, just goes back into quarterly giveaways and uh, the cost of keeping the show going. And, you know, we really appreciate that. And so our, our latest patrons is uh, Ryan Goward, a uh, guy from Michigan, um, guy that I was actually in the Marines with, and um, Adrian Kirkweg from Missouri. And then finally, uh, just today, Chris McRae from Virginia. So um, thank you so much, guys. We really do appreciate it and good luck on that giveaway. And, um, so if you want to sign up for that, uh, patreon.com forward slash bowhunter chronicles podcast, if not, no big deal. These guys that are already in are saying, stop talking about this. We don't want any more. I think there's like 25 people in the, in the giveaway right now. So it's a one in 25 uh, chance at this point to win the, the, the saddle hunting kit, but really all we ask is that you tell somebody else about the podcast. So if you heard an episode or, you know, you and your buddies have been thinking about doing a lifetime hunt and you're like, oh man, I heard this guy talking about Alaska. 
we should totally do this. Um, you know, just tell somebody else about the podcast, get, get us exposed to more people so that, um, you know, we can, we can keep this thing going. And, uh, you know, we appreciate that so much. If you, and, and if you can rate us on however you're listening, uh, you know, if it's iTunes or whatever, you know, hit that five stars or, or, or whatever. And if you really like us or you really hate us, leave us a review, uh, because that's the only way that we can actually get better, uh, as we can read those reviews and, you know, we get, you know, thousands of downloads and we've got like 70 reviews. So we know that there's people out there getting the show. Um, but, uh, the, the, the feedback has been pretty good, but you know, if you really like us, leave us a review that helps us bumps us up in the, the iTunes algorithm in the podcast. So we'll get into, uh, in front of more people there, but you know, either way, uh, we just appreciate it. You can follow along with us on Facebook, um, Instagram, and then YouTube. We <laughs> just put up a, a, a really funny hunt of, uh, Frank, kind of like a heartbreaker, but, um, but we've got some, some more videos coming out on, on YouTube and, um, definitely check that out. Um, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for 2019. Everything's been so great. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, Adam. And John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit, um, I guess, outside of our expertise. Not that we have all that much on a whole lot of things anyways, but um, we're going to be talking uh, with the Michigan hunter, Jim Ackout, um, traditional bow hunter, um, been all over the country, all over the world on a lot of DIY hunts, a lot of, a lot of different uh you know, species, all, all different things. And, uh, just, a, a a wealth of knowledge and a lot of experience. Uh, one of the listeners actually, uh, put us on to him and, uh, we'd already been introduced to him a little bit from, uh, some other podcasts that he was on and it was kind of just, uh, serendipitous how it all came together. Um, so, uh, really looking forward to this one. How are you doing tonight, Jim? I'm doing good. How are you guys tonight? Good. John's just fresh out of the woods and, <laughs> I'm just fresh uh, back from uh, wrapping Christmas presents, you know, so. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I was out tonight hunting myself, so nice day out. Yeah, it was beautiful out tonight. <clears throat> so um, that was a, a very, very um, brief uh, summary. Uh, can you give us a little bit about your background and your your uh, hunting style? And, and uh, we, we like to get a background of like, you know, how you grew up hunting, how you kind of got into it and kind of where it's brought you to today. So. Okay. Well, um, my dad um, is a hunter and um, he was, you know, he's always been a bow hunter as well as a gun hunter. And um, I started shooting archery, you know, at a young age. Um, shot a, I guess it would be a lemon wood or a hickory flat bow for, for a lot of years when I was younger. And then in 1975, um, I was just going to be like 12 years old. And my dad's like, look, you're going to be old enough to legally hunt here in Michigan. So it's time you upgrade that bow that you've been shooting. So, uh, load the family up and we, and this is kind of like a normal thing for us. When we go up north, a lot of times we'd stop by the, uh, Fred Bear Museum up there. So we stopped by the Fred Bear Museum in September of that year, and I bought a brand new bow, uh, Black Bear Magnum. 
recurve. And then my dad picked up a, he wanted a new bow anyway, and he got a Kodiak Magnum. And he already, like I say, he was a traditional bow hunter anyway. <clears throat> but then, uh, so that kind of shifted gears for me. And then, you know, I got real serious about it. And then, um, it just kind of went from there and we lived on a farm and, uh, I had run of that here and huge woods behind it. And I just kind of went from there and I just, couldn't stop bow hunting and I still haven't, you know, it's just been a passion. Um, and always been bear archery for the most part. Um, a couple of years I shot a predator recurve made here in Michigan. And, um, but mostly it's always been, you know, under bear bows. And I guess that goes back to being able to go to the museum when it was still here in Michigan in the factory and just going in there and seeing all the mounts and everything and seeing the Fred bear videos and the hunting adventures and, those adventures always were in the back of my mind. I think that's kind of what's led to me going all over and trying to do all these different hunts and pursue different species all over. So that's kind of background how it all happened. Okay. And so, you know, you're, you're giving us a timeline starting, you know, certainly back before I was born. Um, I was born in 74. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> So, uh, through, throughout that time, I mean, the, the changes in, in equipment and kind of from, you know, back, uh, I'm not sure if it was at that time, if there was even compounds or, or when they, it, they, there had to have been the earlier ones. Um, but how, uh, how come you've stuck with traditional? I mean, like I said, we've never talked to, you know, traditional archers at length, um, and definitely not on the podcast. Um, so what is, what, what's kept you in that, in that frame? Well, you know, and, and at that time, you know, that was around the transition of, you know, the compounds becoming more popular at that time, I guess. And, um, maybe a little bit thereafter, maybe in a little bit later seventies, it was really gaining popularity at that time. Um, but I guess I just, um, stuck with the recurve because of the ease of shooting it, you know, and, um, a lot of my friends that were, you know, that I was in school with, you know, and hunted with, they all switched over to compounds. I kind of stuck with it. And then I want to say it's probably a year or two after high school, I was dating a girl and, um, I would shoot my bow in the yard one day at, at the farm and she stopped over. And I don't know, a couple of weeks later, she comes over with this box and I'm like, what's that? She goes, well, I was telling my dad what kind of bow you were shooting. And you didn't understand why you shoot one of these old bows, so I bought you this. And it was, I opened up with a browning something compound bow. I forget what it was, but it was a wood riser. <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh, okay. You know, so <laughs> I didn't really know what to say or do at that point. But, um, so it was like summertime and I kind of started shooting it a little bit and, um, and I could shoot very well with it. And then hunting season came and, um, like that first week, I probably missed two or three deer with it. I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I can't, the deer would come in and I just was like, man, I can't do this. You know, I thought probably like four or five days into the season, like I said, I missed a couple of deers. I grabbed my recurve the one night, went out and a doe came in at like 20 some yards and I shot her perfect. And I said, well, that's the end of that. I said, <laughs> I can't do this. And I said, you know, you know, so that was the end of her and the end of the bow. <laughs> and so that was my limited you know, it was, you know, a few weeks experience with a compound bow and I just, I just could never, I guess I couldn't get my head into the technical evaluation when a deer would come in, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Instead of just doing it, not 
thinking about what I was doing. So, and I've just always um, stuck with traditional archery ever since then. You know, I mean, I just I've never seen any reason to change. Yeah, um, like I said before the podcast, uh, you know, we've got the one friend who's uh, real into uh, only into traditional archery, and he's an uh, older gentleman, gentleman, and, you know, his experiences, he shot a compound, and he was elk hunting, and he'd left from his cabin, and he, I forget what he did, he slipped and broke a limb, or yeah, broke the cam, or bent it, and then had to go back, and you know, had to find a, you know, the, the town where he's at, there's no bow shops, there's no anything. So <laughs> Within probably five, six hours, actually. <laughs> and so he said, that's enough of this. And so he just brings an extra string and has another, you know, that that's yep. basically everything, um, just the simplicity yep. of it. So um, I can certainly see that. Now, you know, for for us, you know, being Michigan guys, and we grew up in a time of baiting and all that, uh, what was your hunting style starting out and, you know, how has that changed? One of the things where, you know, that keeps me from uh, wanting to uh, further go into the traditional realm um, is that I'm not a good bow hunter anyways. <laughs> and I feel like I can't get that, that close or that confident or that um, whatever. So like, what's your, your hunting style and uh, has, has that changed over the years? Well, I guess it's, it's, um, like with anything, I guess my style has changed because I get, as you're always learning something every time you go out, you always learn and pick up little things. And being that I grew up on a farm here in the Selma, Michigan, um, when I was a kid, say in high school or even junior high, to see a deer was kind of rare, but they were around, but the population was very low. So, um. I just would try to kind of look for signs, you know, and, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old and your dad's like just turning you loose, kicking you out in the woods, you're kind of on your own, you're going to learn, you know. So I started figuring it out and hunting, you know, say the edge of crop fields and hay fields and stuff like that. But as time has gone on, now I kind of, I don't do that so much. I kind of look for transition zones, bottlenecks, um, concentrate on feeding areas like that aren't the normal crops, especially when there's acorns, you know, and I'll concentrate on, say, find a good white oak that's producing, and you know that's going to draw the deer. And then as the season progresses, then I know where, say, the doe bedding areas are, and I try to hunt the edges of that kind of stuff, you know, and um, take advantage of that, or travel corridors. And there's a lot of times I'll go out and say the wind is wrong or stuff like that. I've got a couple of stands set up on these farms I hunt that I'll just sit, I'll go sit back. They're great for gun hunting, but for bow hunting, eh, maybe a deer might wander by, but the thing is I can sit back and watch with my binoculars and see stuff. Start picking apart what's going on and see the deer movement. And then I'll try to capitalize on that and move a stand in there or whatever I have to do. So. And so you're, uh, you're still hunting from a, a, a tree stand that's, that's, you're not, uh, spot and stock or still hunting or, or, or well, just on I do the ground? That too. You know, I guess it's just uh, depending on where I'm hunting, but I have no qualms about hunting from the ground and I do do that. So, um, so it's just, I guess it depends where I'm hunting in the given situation and what that is, you know, and then, you know, it's just kind of how I approach my deer hunting. So. Okay. Now we just recently switched over to saddles. Have you ever tried a saddle? 
No, I've never, <laughs> I've never uh, tried the saddle, but you know, it's kind of like uh, I know we, like you mentioned earlier, it seemed like uh, there's been this resurgence of traditional archery the last few years, and we noticed that back in the '90s too. Well, then this whole big thing with these saddles and everybody thinks it's the latest and greatest things. I'm like we had that back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Those tree saddles back then and everybody went away from it, you know, and it died out. And now there's a resurgence, but I personally have never hunted with them. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of the, a lot of guys that had stuck with the saddle from, you know, the early days or from a long ago were the traditional, um, hunters and i think it was because of the length of the bow and you can get it away from the tree and things like that and that's people i've talked to things that i've i've read but yeah we talked to the original owners of trophy line the green family yeah a few weeks back here and uh yeah they were talking about it being invented like in the 60s (laughs) so we we kind of said how it was a not exactly a new thing um, so the, right. the the listener that had, um, uh, you know, emailed me, uh, Charles, he had said that you've got quite a streak of killing deer uh, every year. Um, so what's that all about? <laughs> well, I um, I shot my first deer in seven, yeah, nineteen seventy nine, and then uh, I killed eight points the first week of the bow season this year, and uh, I've always kept a log book since 1979 actually before that even when i didn't kill a deer but i've kept a log book of my deer hunts and going through it this was 40 straight years i've killed a deer that's pretty impressive (laughs) (laughs) yeah so in michigan and then of course i've hunted a lot of other states for deer too but 40 straight years in michigan i've killed a deer and so you had mentioned uh, gun stands and stuff like that do you hunt with a rifle still as well well you know I never really hunted with a rifle until it was legalized here in southern Michigan a couple of years ago. Okay. But if I'm hunting with a gun, it was always with a slug gun when I was younger. And then when night rifles first came out, I mean, when they first came out, I had one of the very first night rifles because I wanted something, you know, I read up on them. I found out that you could shoot considerable distance with it and, you know, shooting with old smoothbore slug gun. You know, you're getting a flyer and you're limited and this, this, this. It's always an issue with them. So with those inline muzzleloaders, I may only have one shot, but they were, you know, super accurate. Okay. So I switched to the muzzleloader, you know, from the shotgun. When, Like I say, when those came first came out back in, I think that was 85 or 86. And uh, a lot of my friends laughed at me. Well, you're only going to get one shot. I said, I don't care. That's all I need. <laughs> Because, dear, you guys wish you could shoot. I could shoot. So, <laughs> but, um, but so I, I was basically just, if I'm not hunting with my bow, I always hunted with a muzzleloader. Or I did some, you know, I still do a little bit of handgun hunting, but mostly it's always with the, most of my hunting is always bow hunting. Okay. Yeah. And I, that's, you, you said that it's the, uh, muzzleloader for the, for the listeners who may not be familiar. That's K N I G H T. Not hunting in the evening or dark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the the night rifles yep. are completely different. Um. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like, and, then, and the only other time I would ever use a rifle is, um, or I have used a rifle is in Alaska. So and that's really it. So okay, so uh, you know, we wanted to talk about it since you had brought it up. Um, you know, for 
for myself, I, and I think I would imagine a lot of people, a lot of listeners and, uh, you know, for, um, the hunt that we went on last year was a do it yourself elk hunt in, um, Idaho, which is a pretty, uh, I don't know, monumental task, um, to try and figure out on your own, but you know, it's connected to the rest of the United States. There's some logistics and, and things like that. In Alaska, you know, if you're the History Channel or whatever, the last frontier or, or however it's touted, uh, I, f- I feel like is is really viewed as that, at least for myself, is like, man, to, to do that would really be something. And I think a lot of people would say that about an elk hunt or whatever. But like I said, logistically – it's a lot easier, I would imagine, than uh, than Alaska. Driving to Idaho, you mean elk yeah. hunting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went yeah. through a lot of other places where I could have hunted elk or I could have done uh, a lot of things. So uh, when was the first time that you uh, went to Alaska, and how, how did that come about? Well, the first time I went to Alaska was 1992, um, and I was actually had booked I want to say almost two years prior to that, I had booked with a pilot to get flown in southeast Alaska and dropped off um, at a high mountain lake and do a, a mountain goat hunt. So I booked it a couple of years early, and it would have been probably in the spring of that year when the fishing game regulations came out. He called me and said, you know, there's been a change in the regulations, and they implemented the, uh, the guide requirement for mountain goat hunting. So he's like, I'm not going to be able to, um, you know, you're obviously not going to be able to hunt unless you hire a guide. He goes, I can get you a guide that was going to be, you know, two or $3,000 at the time, whatever it was going to be. And there's just no way I could afford it. So, and I wanted to do it myself anyway. So he refunded me my money because of that. It was out of his hands and mine. And then, uh, <clears throat> just kind of like on a whim, um, uh, started contacting a couple of people and I did a, just a flying caribou hunt and got dropped off and did a caribou hunt on you know, do-it-yourself deal. And then uh, I just kind of went from there, just started going back. And uh, I went back you know, pretty much every year since, at least once or twice, you know, depending. Last few years, I've been going up there and doing fishing, like a fishing trip for a week or two. But uh, mostly I go up there in the fall and I just do-it-yourself style hunts and then, uh, you know, all throughout Alaska, for either caribou or this past year was moose hunting and then uh, black bear hunting down on Prince of Wales Island and on black tails down on Prince of Wales Island. So, and so that for that first year, I mean, like John and I are looking at each other and our eyes are as big as saucers, you know. It's like yeah, I just booked a pilot and I was just going to go in there. So, um, for someone who who wanted to do something like that, uh, and I'd imagine. I think you said it like in the nineties. So that's, you know, what, 30 years ago now. Right. Yeah. Um, how, have how have things changed, but I mean, how would you go about it? How long did it take you to, uh, or I guess what things had you done prior to that to say, okay, well, I'm going to go and do this hunt or were you just like, well, I want to hunt in Alaska. So I'm just going to, I found a place that there here's, you know, here's where the goats are. And then just, track down a pilot or how does that whole process take place? That's exactly kind of how the whole goat hunt went. You know, I (laughs) figured out where there was a good area to goat hunt 
I found, I called a couple different flying services, talked to different pilots, and I told this guy, I said, listen, I want to do it, you know, get dropped off. I want to be able to bow hunt. And he's like, I've got the perfect spot for this. He goes, a high mountain lake. You go in early season. A lot of guys don't like hunting early season because maybe the fur isn't as prime or long. You know, a lot of people shoot a go. They want to get life-size mounted, whatever that case may be. I said, listen, I just want to go hunt. I'm not worried about all that. And he's like, I've got the perfect thing. So that's how the mountain goat part of that went down. But then when it was canceled, um, I just kind of, uh, obviously the internet wasn't, wasn't an option. So I took and talked to a few people and then it was actually through a friend of a friend that said, yeah, his buddy had just went there with his brother and used this guy for a flying hunt. So he got me the guy's number and I talked to him and then, uh, called that pilot up and said, yeah, I can get you in, you know, and I actually hunted down on the Alaska Peninsula the first time I went down there, you know, it's just flat rolling tundra. And, uh, that's when the caribou herds are really big and, um, they're not like that anymore, unfortunately. And just kind of, you know, you just figured it out. I just kind of did everything like, okay, he goes, you're limited to this much gear. So make sure you bring a good tent and sleeping bag. You know, they did, they don't care. They're flying you and dropping you off. You know, ultimately they're, responsible for your safety to a point but that's that's about it you know so you just kind of kind of use your head and plan accordingly so that's just what i did and through the years obviously gear and equipment has changed you know you got your little list and you know what to take and what not to take so so on that first one did you go with your your archery equipment or did you bring them were you right nope i actually because um i wasn't really sure what i was getting into and the guy kind of I said, well, you know, you're going to be down there on the Alaska Peninsula. It's going to be pretty, pretty windy and rough, but you'll be in caribou and, you know, you may not be, there's no, there's a, it's just rolling flat tundra, no trees anywhere. So no cover. I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't take my bow on the very first trip. And to be honest, I wish I would have because I was into caribou and I could, I, there was enough in the topography of the way of the rolling hills and the little cuts and stuff. I, you could have made it happen with, with the bow. There's no doubt in my mind. And so how has that changed from that first hunt to, I mean, if you, if you were telling me how to go about it and and John and I, we said, all right, we want to do, we want to hunt Alaska and kind of like uh, young Jim, we don't really care. Uh, We do want to go and have some opportunities at whatever animal you say is the the one. Uh, What would you say for someone wanting to get some opportunities go to Alaska on a DIY hunt. How would you tell us to go about that? Well, if I was going to do it, if I had to do it in this day and age, um, like I say, I know that the caribou herds in a lot of the areas of Alaska um, aren't what they used to be, but then in other areas of Alaska, they're very, you know, they're doing, they're thriving, they're doing well. So you have the internet, obviously, and you can use that as a great tool. And, um, the other thing, um, I'm a member of the PBS Professional Bow Hunter Society. And if you're a member of that, it's like everyone in that organization is a good hunter. They, they've done these hunts and everyone's willing to share their knowledge and experience. And when you, with people like that, you can kind of like start picking their brains and yeah, go here, go there. And, um, so if I was going to be a first time do it yourself Alaska guy, I would go on a caravan. So you get your feet wet and kind of see what it's all about. I mean, you could obviously go to Kodiak Island and hunt blacktails, or you could go to 
Southeast Alaska, say Prince of Wales, and and do that. But a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to Alaska to hunt deer. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they think deer is deer, and they want to hunt something that they can't normally get in the lower 48. So I would say a caribou hunt would be the best way to go. You know, and that's what I would do, and just um, start. You know, your homework by researching, see where the better caribou herds are, and, and just you know, contacting the pilots, the flying. You know, there's there's, there's a whole list of every flying service in Alaska. You can go through that and see what areas they fly into and, and just start going from there. And so if you were going to do it yourself and like that whole thing, I mean, so when we went to Idaho, it was, you know, there was, logistically speaking, we were away from everything as far as like towns. There was no cell phone service. You're using your, your in-reach and stuff. And, you know, so when you buy an inReach and you sign up for the program, it's like, you know, you can buy this insurance or whatever, and it'll cover up to $10 million of them to come pick you up or whatever. And that's right. kind of like a, a real gut check because you're like, man, I'm really going to be somewhere where no one <laughs> is going to be. So when you're talking about, like, talking to the pilots and talking to this fly-in service, I think that's really foreign to – you know, 99% of, of hunters out there. And I would say, especially the listeners to, to our show. So what is that, that process like talking to, you know, these pilots? I mean, when you had mentioned like the internet, um, you know, the first thing that went through my mind was like, A, they want to sell you something or B, there's these keyboard commandos. So when you talked about the Professional Bowhunter Society, well, that's a whole other thing. Like talking to someone that's actually done it, other than someone on the the other side of the the screen who maybe has read a lot about it, but they and they think they know about what's going on. So what's that process like when you're you're dealing with the the pilots and and, and trying to get all these things coordinated? Because things that a normal non uh, fly-in type hunter wouldn't think about as weather, fog, you know, logistic, yeah. like, like time of year, you know, it's really, uh, think about like a cruise or flying to Florida or anywhere. It's like, it's a lot cheaper when the weather's shitty or, or whatever. So, I mean, does some of that stuff fall into play when you're, when you're, you're planning these types of things? Yeah. And I mean, logistically it, it, it's, it's a big undertaking because of what the pilots and where, say, if you're going into these carriers, you can only get so close. And then, you know, Alaska is huge. And a lot of Alaska is void of game, believe it or not. So they've got to get you to where the game is. And when you, wherever you're, there's game, there's no cell phone signal, there's no anything. So you're either taking, like you said, an in reach or you're like, we will run a satellite phone, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, or have both, you know, just because. And, but the main thing that you really, there's two different ways you can do these hunts. One, you can call a pilot and they can dump you in an area and they say, yeah, we're going to put you in this area and we're, you know, this is where the caribou are and they're going to charge you a set fee. Then there's other pilots that charge you an hourly rate. So these pilots that charge an hourly rate, sometimes it's, a better way to go. It may be cheaper. So you that's one thing you gotta kinda try to figure out. Um and there again you want to talk when you're talking to these flying um services, I would 
you know, you always get to ask for past hunters, both successful and not successful. Whether they're bow hunters or rifle hunters, you can talk to them and get, you know, that's the, and if they can't provide that, then just move on to another one because they should be able to provide that for you. Then you can call the people that have actually done it and see what's going on. And the main thing with Alaska, you're at the mercy of the weather. You may sit, like my friend Brian, um, that moose hunted with me this year, he went right back to Kodiak, and I believe they sat in Kodiak for three or four days before they could get flying out, flown out to their hunting location this year. Well, if you're there for 10 days only, you've already lost half your hunt. You know, but you are at the mercy of the weather, and you have to be prepared for that. So we always go in a couple of days early, you know, into town or wherever we're going to be before we fly out. We plan a couple of days at the end of the hunt, too, because it could, you know, I'll be honest with you, about 50% of the time and back in the day when I used to get flown in, I never, ever came home when I was supposed to because of the weather. So it's just one of those things. And so it sounds like, you know, going a couple times a year, you've got plenty of time to um, uh, play with or you've shaped your life around making sure that you have this amount of time. What would you expect, you know, again, for someone who's never done it before, um, what would you say this is the optimal amount of days or this is this is how you would you would structure your your hunt, uh, given that information there? Well, I, you know, and honestly, I, I get four weeks vacation a year. So it's always a juggling thing. You know, like this year, I'm not going to go up there fishing because I've got to, you know, I'm married. i got to take my wife somewhere because last few years I put vacations on her with the back burner. So, but anyway, when I go up there, <clears throat> I would say that you'd want to try to set it up so you can hunt the minimum of five days if you're going on a caribou hunt. Seven would be better, a couple of days before and after, so you're figuring 10 days you know, total, maybe 11 days. Well, that's kind of how I would plan that because, like I say, the weather, that, that can always be an issue. But then you can go up there, like I was up there caribou hunting about, uh, I don't know, about six, seven years ago. And I come back and my wife kind of looked at me. She goes, were you in Florida or Alaska? Because I was so suntanned. I said, it, you know, it was 65 degrees, 70 degrees every day. We never had rain. It was sunny. Wore a t-shirt every day to hunt. You know, so I, it, it, it can go from one extreme to the other, and then next year you can go back to the same area and you'd be hunting in snow. <laughs> so we flew into Moose Camp this year. It was 70 degrees. When we left, it was 40 degrees, you know. Crazy. So that, <laughs> that, that moose hunt this year um, yeah. was a pretty um, unorthodox hunt, I guess, from from the the outset. Um, so like I said, I, I listened to a podcast that you were on the stick Chronicles and you guys took over the podcast and recorded episodes from the field, from the hunt, um, you, you know, outlining each and every day that you were there. Um, what was the premise of that hunt for the, the listeners who haven't heard it? And, um, we'll get into a little bit of the questions I have on that. Okay. Well, um, premise of that hunt was kind of a little background on it. Um, my friend Brian Burkhardt had been hunting up there, I believe, since 2008. He'd been hunting with Monty Browning, and I'm sure yourself or a lot of the listeners have heard of Monty Browning. Mm-hmm. So Monty had been going up there forever. I think 25 or 30 years moose hunting, doing solo hunts, sometimes for a month by himself up there. So 
I always had mentioned to Brian, Brian and I are good friends. I said, you know, there's every year that Monty's not going to hunt with you. Um, and you got room for another hunter that I'd be very interested in going, you know, um, cause Monty would kind of, they'd get flown in the same thing. And Monty would hike six, seven miles up river and solo hunt for a couple weeks by himself and float back down to where Brian would be hunting and he'd be hunting with somebody else, you know, and then, then it ended up that Monty started just hunting out of Brian's camp. So then it was in 2018, Monty Browning killed a bull of a lifetime. So he, they came back from the hunt. He said, I'm done. He said, I've killed, you know, what I've wanted to, you know, met my goal, I guess, or whatever, a <laughs> lifelong dream. He's killed other bulls, but that was it. And, uh, he just wanted to spend more time with his wife and hunting in the lower 48. So then, he said, you know, have at it. So then Brian, you know, says, are you in? I said, well, you know, it took me two seconds to say yes. So, <laughs> so then, uh, we started playing in the hunt a little bit. And, um, <clears throat> one day at work, Brian calls me. He says, Hey, so I'm listening to the, uh, Fred Bear Field Notes podcast. You know, it's the 60th anniversary of the 59 little Delta hunt. I said, yeah. He goes, why don't we use all original? 59 gear, you know, go on the hunt. I said, okay. So <laughs> it was like a no brainer. He's like, okay, let's do it. He said, okay, I'll talk to you later. And that was it. He hung up and I thought, well, I've got all bear archery equipment. That's all I've ever hunted with, all the original stuff, but I don't have an original 59 bow. So right away, the wheel starts spinning. I got to find an original 59 that's in heavy enough weight to move somewhere. So I started looking and then Brian, in turn, had to do the same thing. So Brian ended up getting an original 59 that was in pristine condition. That was 58 pounds, 64-inch bow, 58 pounds, like excellent condition. Me, on the other hand, I found a bow that was ready for the wood pile <laughs> that a guy was getting rid of. And I thought, eh, at first I looked at it, I'm like, this ain't bad shape. And then I thought, wait a minute. This is the perfect bow for this hunt to resurrect it and bring it back and take it on that hunt. So I bought the bow off the guy. I took it over to the bow hospital here in Michigan. John Rafferty's the guy's name. That's John. Can you fix this bow? He said, who would you mean fix it? It doesn't look broke. I go, you just restore it to original condition. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So he restored it. And then um, at the traditional bow hunting expo in Kalamazoo in January, Brian and I were there and we just started talking to people and then, you know, telling them what our plan was. And the next thing you know, this person's saying, well, here, I have this from 1959. Here, I have this. You can take this on the hunt. And people, it just started the ball rolling. It was, everybody was jumping on board. And so then, I don't know if you guys have heard of, ever heard of John Cabisa? No, nope. got a very, very extensive, extensive collection of Fred Bear's original personal belongings and bows, including Fred Bear's personal takedown. You've seen all the pictures. Fred Bear's porcelain hat. He's got all that. So we went over to his house one day. <clears throat> he had all the original slides from 1959 from the hunt. So we sat there and went through the slides. I took, um, Pictures, uh, Fred Bear's original arrows from the hunt, um, so I could have them duplicated. 
all new arrows made. Um, what else did we do that day? Brian picked up his bow that day, and the guy that was selling it met us there. Um, I, John had an original camel with a K jacket that Bear Archery started selling in 1959. I bought that off him for the hunt. And then uh, it just kept snowballing from there. John had original bear knocks. So we usually grabbed the original knocks to have the arrows made. Um, then Brian contacted uh, Susan St. Charles, who's Glenn St. Charles' daughter, who was on the home with Fred Bear, asked her to make the arrows for us, which she kind of at first wasn't on board, but then she thought about it. She goes, well, I got to do it, you know. So she did. Um, and like I say, everyone just kept contributing what little things that we took we even took Fred Bear's personal bolo tie with us on the hunt, you know. <laughs> so everything on the hunt, for the most part, was all original 1959 gear. So and I had the arrows replicated right to the T, exactly like Fred Bear's arrows for the hunt, and uh, we just ran with it. And so uh, our, our listeners um, had asked about that, you know, when I posed the questions to them. They wanted to know what is the difference uh, with traditional archery um, equipment where if you would take uh, – they they didn't exist back then, but if you were to take the first compound bow out on a hunt and try and recreate it right now, it would be – you know, a much different animal than what we have today. And the arrows have changed and everything has changed. Now they're, they were lethal back then, but it's a different mindset. What is the difference or how, how would you compare one of today's bows or the bow that you hunted with this evening to that bow? Or maybe you even hunted with that bow uh, this evening, but what's the difference in the equipment as far as, feel efficiency all of that um well as for efficiency i don't see maybe that there's any difference to be honest with you i mean obviously there's new core materials new limb materials and stuff like that um maybe they're shooting on the new traditional stuff a lot of people are shooting the fast flight strings and stuff like that but um i have the original 59 which i've been hunting with all season since i got back from alaska and i have a brand new re- you know they're remaking that 59 kodiak and to be honest with you, I see no difference in either way that they shoot. They're both excellent shooting bows. They're fast as can be, you know, relatively speaking, because they're recurves. Um, but I don't see any difference. You know, obviously, like I say, there's the, the newer, more modern recurves for long bows are made with more space-age type materials. But I see no disadvantage for what we were using from that aspect, you know, um, Brian ended up shooting a bull moose. Uh, I think it was, I don't remember how wide it was, 62 or whatever, 62 and a half inches, something like that, maybe bigger than that. But uh, he put two arrows completely through that bull, shooting at 58 pound, you know, with a wood arrow. So, I mean, complete pass-throughs. So, kind of speaks for, for everything. So, I don't know how much more efficient you can get, you know. Well, and that, and that was the question, right? Because... A, we are completely ignorant as to the, um, you know, the traditional realm. However, um, you know, it it would seem that it's almost like kind of like 
in a lot of things, whether it's uh, rifles or tools or whatever, everybody talks about the good old days and the they were made better with better materials and all of these things like back in the day. You know, when you talk about a lot of different things now where technology has changed, um, but in the the quote unquote primitive realm, um, it, it just just curiosity is, you know, were they made to last? Were they made better back then or or, you know, how, how does it compare? So it's well, really, there's been no, you know, obviously changes like in 19 up to 1959 bear was using on their limb tips it was called a micarta tip and it was kind of layers of paper that were laminated onto the limb tips and on the older bows like that they have a tendency at times they could dry out so you would draw back and the limb tip would get overlap or the overlay would come loose or separate your string would come off so 1960 bear archery got away from that and they started using fiberglass overlays on the limb tips. So when I had that guy restore my bow, I had him take the micarta paper tips off and I had him put fiberglass tips on. They look exactly the same, but I didn't want to have to worry about that where Brian's bow had the original limb tips on it. So not that we were concerned about it because the bow was in pristine condition. It's usually the bows that were, have not been taken care of per se. That, that could an issue like that could arise, but I took a spare bow with us just in case we had another um, bear takedown with us, just in case one of the bows did break. But the bows performed flawlessly. I mean, Brian ended up coming back. He shot a beautiful white tail with his. Uh, I think I think he shot a couple white tails. I I shot a couple white tails as well with mine. So the bows just shoot. I mean, they're just so from that aspect, I don't see any difference. <clears throat> I mean, just it's just. I guess if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> right. Well. And for the rest of your equipment, like, because uh, I, I remember listening to it and reading about it, like, uh, you are wearing, like, the traditional, you know, garb of the day, right? So leather yep. boots and, you know. Yeah, well, we were hunting. We kind of, it was, I don't know, it was, we, we had, like, say, the leather boots maybe around camp, but to go out hunting, we were wearing, um, like a knee-high boot or rubber boot, or my mine were the knee-high rubber boots that converted to a hip boot. Okay. Brian was wearing a, a Cabela's Instinct boot that has a built-in uh, gator into it that's integrated. And then for river crossings, he had, like, wiggy waders, and I could just pull my hip boots up then, you know. So I instead of switching back and forth, like, say, maybe they did in the 59 on tech and their hip boots, switching for every river crossing, we didn't go through all that, you know. But... uh for the most part, everything else was all original gear, you know, original 59 broadheads, quivers, the whole nine yards. Okay. And this, much of that equipment changed um, over the decades? Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, you can look at, you know, look at the difference in the clothing, mm-hmm. you know. Nowadays, everyone's wearing, you know, high-tech gear, whether it's Sitar, Kuyu, and, you know, stuff like that, and that's, that's one thing, you know, I was going to, when we were kind of, not to get off track here, but when we were talking about going to Alaska, that's most important thing that I can't get, you know, stress enough is you have to have good rain gear because it's going to rain most likely. And it will ruin your hunt if you don't have good rain gear. So, and it's expensive, but it's worth the money. Well, I think if you're putting that sort of money into a, a trip to go, I mean, and in, in we encountered that, 
and, and there were definitely trade-offs, but just going on our first elk hunt and it's like you buy it to do that and you're investing this much time and this much money and this yep. much everything into the tags, you know, you're not going to go out there and, you know, that expensive rain gear, you know, at three, $400 or something isn't going to be worth the amount of heartache or inability to hunt or uncomfortable or dangerous um, conditions that you're going to put yourself in if you don't have it, right? Right, right, exactly. You know, and, you know, and you're alluding back to the, you know, using original 59 gear or just using traditional archery in general. When, I guess when I'm on these hunts, the last, the last thing I want to worry about is my bow or even think about it. So I just never, I mean, nothing against shooting a compound bow. I think they're great, but I just don't, they get banged up or, you know what I mean? Like you said, your friend had an issue with a cam break or something. I don't want to have to worry about anything. If a string breaks, I throw another string on and keep going, you know, stuff like that. So I'd rather worry about other gear, like my rain gear and stuff like that. So that's like I say, that's all personal preference. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it's not, we, struggle here i think with our mindset on this show um not between traditional archery and compound archery um or rifle hunting and bow hunting it's we we are very passionate about bow hunting in the i don't know i i guess how intimate it is um, you know, you right. have to be so close that every, I feel like every deer that I see with a, with a bow, I could kill with a rifle. Um, exactly. but when you enter in crossbows and air bows and yeah. atlatls yeah. and slingshots and spears and everything, um, you know, it, it becomes real hypocritical real fast. Uh, oh, yeah. because if I say like, I'm better than a rifle hunter or a crossbow hunter, uh, the guy with the, the 59, recurve in the bolo right. tie says well you know this and then the self bow guy says well i made my own you know um so it's it's a really uh slippery slope so it's it's not it saying this equipment or that equipment it's it's, it's it is personal preference you know exactly and, you know and like i always tell everyone i don't care what you hunt with if you're, you're ethical i could give a crap hunt with it have fun if you're enjoying the outdoors and have fun that's the way i look at it so you mentioned ethical, right? So yep. with a with a recurve, traditional equipment, longbow, um, where is your your range and self control, and and how has that affected a the style of hunting that we talked about at the beginning, and like opportunity or kind of like mindset when you're in the field. I guess because I've never been a hunted with, you know, a compound with sites that I know that <clears throat> I hear guys always shooting stuff at 40, 50 yards now. And I guess even further, I, I guess I don't really know what they do, but I don't, um, I don't think that, I guess when I usually set myself up like for deer hunting or bear hunting or anything like that, I'm always under 30 yards. I mean, I feel very confident out to 30 yards and I've shot stuff beyond 30 yards. And just, you know, just everything seemed right, you know, but 
obviously the closer the better right? any animal whether you're or even if i was shooting the compound you know, i'm sure you guys feel the same way you want it close you know mm-hmm. um but i uh but you know anything inside of 20 25 yards but it doesn't mean that i wouldn't shoot at something further everything was presented itself properly but i practice you know always out to 30 yards and um, a couple of years ago i shot I don't know, it was maybe three or four years ago, I shot an antelope out in Utah, I think at like 27 yards. But I had been practicing out to 30. I shot uh, a couple years prior to that, I shot my mountain goat at like 30 yards. You know? Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say, out to, you know, I, I don't have an issue shooting out to 30, 35 yards, but uh, closer to better. <laughs> well, I I totally agree with that. I mean, John shoots at all these every distance um but he you know is one of these guys that shoots religiously and I think the traditional guys are even you know more yeah. regimented um yeah. but I mean Thursday I had deer everywhere around me and I passed a shot at 31 33 yards something like that it was 16 degrees and I was really cold. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was at full draw and I could have taken the shot and I, you know, it was just in my gut. I didn't really, I didn't really want to take that shot. And I've, you know, I know I can make that shot. I've shot deer farther than that, but it, right. 16 degrees, bulky clothing, there's a lot of variables. Um, exactly. Nope. And like I say, just, I guess, given the situation, you know, so the closer, the closer, the better. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But I mean, that's the, the traditional archery thing, right? Like the hashtags, I hunt close, right? That's what I think of when I think of traditional archery is I I personally, just because I'm ignorant to the subject, but to me, it's, you know, from the ground, from six feet away, you know, that sort of a, that sort of a a hunt. And I mean, I'm, I'm, not gonna lie i'm i'm pretty envious of that i'm that's one of the things where i would love to be be able to do that and but i don't think i try to put myself in those situations because i kind of fall back on well i can i know how i can shoot and i know how far i can shoot so i don't set up for that do you see yourself setting up differently uh when you're hunting from the ground or anything like that yeah i mean yeah definitely you know in I just always try to set myself up so that I can have a, you know, a close encounter with stuff. And, um, I don't know if we talked, I'd mentioned to you before when we talked on the phone about that bear hunt in Alaska a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to, kill, I, I'd shot several bears and I'm like, you know, I really just want to spot and stalk and get close to one on the ground with my bow and try to get it, you know, and I had messed around with a couple in Alaska, you know, sneaking up on them in the past. Uh, even in the UP, um, I snuck up on a giant bear a couple springs ago. I mean, just a monster. And I got within like 18 yards of him. And I said, you know what? I've got to do this. I've got to go somewhere where I can spot stalk a bear. So uh, I put in for a tag on Prince of Wales Island. And uh, a buddy of mine he had hunted. The, he had drawn a tag the year before. So he wanted to go along with me and film the hunt. So he did. So we got into a big bear and... Um, <clears throat> We had that bear around us off and on for about 
maybe a little over two hours. There was times she was 20 yards from me catching salmon. And I just kept waiting and he kept looking at me and I'm like, oh, I feel right. You know, and then finally I end up shooting a bear at uh, nine feet. Say, <laughs> so, I just watched that video. That bear, bear was close. <laughs> yeah. So, but there were other times he was, you know, maybe the shot I just didn't feel right when he was at like 18, 20 yards or there was a little bit of a, you know, that grass growing along the river there when he was catching salmon. I just, you know, think of arrow deflection and not that the arrow probably wouldn't have went through it, but all that stuff runs through your mind, you know. But, um, but you know, and like I say, other times you just, you know, when I, when I shot my mountain goat, that was like a steep downhill angle and it was 30 yards, but I had been practicing that all summer and I just felt right, you know. I knew I could make the shot and it worked. So when you say like all the stuff that goes through your mind, like I've never seen a bear in the, in a hunting situation. I've seen bears in the wild, but not, not while I was hunting. Like when you're there within like, I would say bull range and anyone that's hunted ever has been within bull range of something where you couldn't get a shot or you didn't feel comfortable with the shot. Um, but not on the ground with a bear, you know, that's feeding and all, all of these things. So what, what kind of goes through your mind and how do you like settle your thoughts? Or you're just like, well, this is what I'm here for. The, I mean, how do you plan for that? Well, I mean, what is going through your mind at that point? Um, I guess I don't even really think about it because I, like you said that I knew I was there to do that. And that's what I was doing. There were other, there's multiple bears catching salmon up and down that river. You know, so there's bears all over. Um, I've been around bears quite a bit. Um, even elk hunting in Colorado, sitting over like a wallow, I've had bears come right in there rolling around in the mud close to me and bear hunting in the UP all the time. And in Ontario, I just, um, I'm used to them, I guess. And they don't really, some people get really excited. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I shouldn't say that. Not excited. Um, some people are scared of them. I respect them, um, but I guess being there in Alaska, I knew that's what I was there to do, and I knew I was going to have multiple encounters, just based on my friend being there the year before and talking to other friends that had hunted the island, so I knew I'd be in the bears constantly, and, um, and we were. I mean, there was bears fishing all around us, you know, but I just kind of had my mindset on that one bigger bear that we had seen, and I was going to concentrate on him, and that was that. Uh, you guys see it worked out. But, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll link that video um, on the website when this comes out. Um, but let me rephrase the question then. So the first time <laughs> that you uh, encountered a bear while you were hunting or, or whatever, um, what was going through your mind or how was that different? I mean. Um, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the first time. Yeah. The first time I was pretty wound up, you know. <laughs> wow, there's a bear and he's right there and I can, you know, and I was actually bear hunting and I ended up shooting him and that was another thing. I went on, uh, um, was going on an archery hunt up in Ontario and um, just before we left, the outfitter's like, you know, I, the baits that are getting hit aren't really that good for bow hunting. I don't think, in my opinion, if you're using that recurve bow, I don't think you'll be able to get a shot. Maybe you should bring a gun. So, Sure enough, we get up there and the sights weren't going to work for bow hunting. And, uh, but then this big bear walks right in on me and he's like 15 yards in front of me. 
and I'm sitting there with a gun, and I'm like, well, what do I do? I'm like, well, it's my first bear hunt. So I shot him. It was a nice bear, like a 300-pounder. But then the, I said, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to shoot do that, so I'm going to bow hunt. So then the next year, I had a tag here in Michigan. So then I shot a bear with my bow, and that bear come in, and, you know, it's just kind of like, wow, he's right there. You know, this is all coming together. Like, you know, you get pretty fired up, and you got a bear under 12 yards, and I was in a, like a 10-foot height like homemade ladder stand, and the bear was that close. <laughs> so uh, he was actually up on a, um, you know, those cedar trees will fall down, and it's got the big root ball. Mm-hmm. He was walked up on that tree, so he was almost eye level with it, about 12 <laughs> yards. So it's kind of neat, but, uh, you know, something all right through them. And afterward, that's when it really kicks in, you know, after you shake <laughs> then the adrenaline goes crazy. So, so with your, um, your setup, how do you, how heavy are your arrows? I mean, like the final weight, do you, do you weigh them? I mean, are you, yeah, using- um, most everything I hunt with now is, Averages around 750 to 800 grains finished. Um, shooting the main bow I hunt with the last, uh, several years is, uh, I'm drawing, uh, let's say about 57 pounds. That's a bear takedown. So, uh, prior to that, probably for about 15 years, 18 years, I hunted with 60 pounds always, or 62 pounds. So, um, I'm always right around, you know, that, 55 to 60 some pound mark and I'm always trying to just shoot the heaviest arrow I can and I shoot um, I always shoot wood arrows um, except the only thing I didn't shoot uh, with a wood arrow was I shot a bear I think a couple white tails with a grizzly stick arrow mm-hmm. but I was using the original bear razors just okay. with a converted tip and I was screwing them into that and I shot my mountain goat with uh, the grizzly stick arrow but then uh, I went right back to wood after that. So I've always used wood, and I always have used the original bear razors for everything. And so the why why wood? Um, I don't know. I guess it's just <laughs> nostalgia or something. I don't know. I just like wood arrows. Okay. I don't hey. have an issue. I've never had an issue with them. I always shoot feathers, and yeah, I don't ever really have a. I, don't, I guess I don't have a reason why, except I like wood. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess I just want to tell the listener who may be just as ignorant as we are on... Uh, yeah, it's not tri- that they're cheaper because I think they cost more than carbons now. Right. I just ordered, yeah, I ordered a dozen shafts today from a guy, and they're footed, and like, I think it's going to be, he told me, like around 150, 160 just for the dozen bare shafts. And I got to make the arrows, so um, so I, not not that it's any cheaper, like I say, but I just like shooting wood, right? And then with your with your draw weights, there's no let off. So that's the biggest thing that I've. I mean, I've got a, a fifty pound Martin takedown, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, it's just going to be fifty pounds. Well, it's fifty pounds at twenty eight, and I've got like a thirty inch draw, a twenty nine inch draw. Yep. it stacks pretty hard, and that bow. I mean, was much faster than I expected. Um, yeah, it was it was much more than I I had anticipated when yeah. uh, when I had ordered it. So, yeah, that's one thing I know. A lot of I'll have you know friends or or just who people say, hey, you know, I'm really thinking about getting a uh, 
getting a recurve or a longbow, what kind of poundage do you think I should get? I go, what are you shooting right now? And they'll be saying, I'm shooting 65 or 70 with a compound. You guys should go to 60. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. They're like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you, you just never, you're going to, you're going to get frustrated. It's too much from the start. So start with 45 or 50. I mean, a 45 pound recurve will kill anything with a properly tuned arrow on a sharp broadhead. So just about it, you know, most of us are hunting deer anyway. And they'll definitely do it, no problem. So don't overbow yourself and get discouraged, you know. It doesn't, I mean, some people think, you know, well, you got to have this, 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 you know, not to kill a deer. Well, think about how big a deer is. It's not that big. And if you got a heavy arrow, it's going to go through it, you know. Mm-hmm. So. And, and so for uh, someone that was thinking about, getting into traditional archery or anything like that. I mean, you've, you've kind of laid out the, the draw weights and things like that, but, um, you know, much like, uh, compounds, the price spectrum is all over the place from a Samick Sage somewhere around 150 bucks to, you know, a custom, anything that you want, you know, thousand dollars plus. Right. And then in the, the used realm, you know, you could find one at a garage sale, but, you know, I, the thing that frightens me is I've always heard about the twisted limbs and, and, and sure. all sorts of other things. So, um, for someone looking to get into traditional archery or someone that wanted to play around with it or, 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 you know, start the journey, um, how would you, um, direct them in, in that process? Well, I would, you know, a lot of states have, nowadays they have, throughout their bow hunting organizations that are, you know, the state ones, they have a traditional bow hunting organization within the state. That's a really good place to start. And I'm sure most of those all have websites. Um, here in Michigan, uh, Compton Traditional Bow Hunters has their big rendezvous every year in June, Father's Day weekend. Anybody can go to that thing. And I don't care if you've never even had the slightest inkling of what a traditional bow is. You can go there and the vendors are like, here, here you go. Take my bow and go shoot it. Here's some arrows. Need some direction. Here, try this, try that. That's a really good way to start. Okay. You know, and then, um, then you just, you know, it's kind of networking. You'll start meeting people and then everyone, you know, I'm the first one. Someone wants to come up here, grab one of this, here, try this bow, see if this works for you. Try this, you know, because everyone's different, you know, it's like buying a, Ford or Chevy. Some people like either or for whatever reason. You know, some people may not like the handle on this bow, but they like the handle on that bow. You know, so there's a lot of them out there to try. Like you said, you can go from one end of the spectrum to the other. So a good place to start is something like that or one of the traditional bow shoots that are going on around the state and just kind of go from there, you know. Okay. I mean, like I say, it is, I mean, it's been around forever, but it's one of those things where I, I feel like you almost have to know somebody because everybody's got their own opinion. And, you know, until you, you like, I don't want to, I don't want this to sound like wrong, but like for personally, it's like you find like one of these old timers that wants to sit down and talk and they've got all the stuff and they've done everything. You know, there's so much value in, in that, more yeah. so than anything you could search on the internet because right. you never know who's on the end of 
hell, a, a podcast like this, you know, people ask John and I questions and we're like, hey, you know, that's kind of like out of our spectrum. Right. Um, but to sit down with someone who's, you know, got the stack full of wooden right. arrows and the, all the fletchings and all, you know, that's doing it on a regular basis um, is invaluable. So. Right. And it'd be the same with me if I wanted to switch over to a compound. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is go to someone that wants to shoot the compound and say, hey, what do I need to do here? You know, and I know that one of you guys would be more than willing to share what knowledge you have of it. Same as I, um, you know, I don't know any of my friends that shoot traditional archery that wouldn't share their knowledge to try to get someone else into it. And it's something that we enjoy doing, you know, and that's what it's about. I mean, the, the whole bow hunting community as a whole, they're, they're just like that, in my opinion. I don't care what you're shooting, but we always want to, you know, get more people into it and enjoy what we enjoy. There's even, I mean, like, we're members of the Muskegon Bowman Club. There's a group of, you know, the older cats that they're there every morning, you know, through the week. It's like their their job, basically. The guys show up and they have their lunchbox and stuff. But they all shoot, you know, like this time of year, they're all shooting their traditional bows. They all have compound bows, too. But if yep. you go in, I mean, and they'll, uh, like the one guy, he builds the strings, you know, and if you if you have any questions, those guys they will talk your ear off. You won't be able to get out of there, you know. Yeah, well, but, that's that's exactly it. There's enough people out there that are willing to share their knowledge and get someone else into it because it's fun, you know. Yeah, it's I'm 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 like afraid of getting into it because when I get into it, I know I'm just gonna go nuts and I probably won't even pick up my freaking compounds. That's from a freaking that happens, you know. I, uh, several years ago, my dad called me one day and my, I, I live not far from my, the farm I grew up on and my parents have since sold it and live in the UP, but my dad had called me when they still lived down here, something about the neighbor had just bought a compound, could I go help him cite it? And I knew a little bit about it and I said, yeah, I went over there. So I helped him out and I said, get all those pins off there, just put one on there. Why does it have all these? I said, I, I don't know, but you don't, you know, you know so. <laughs> He started shooting out to 20 yards. He's like, wow. I go, so you can shoot it at 15, 20, or probably 25, and it's going to hit the same spot, basically, and it was. He goes, well, you need to shoot with me. I go, I got my bow in the truck. So then uh, he goes, well, go get it. When I got that, he just kind of was staring at me. He goes, what's that? <laughs> I go, oh, he goes, what? Oh, yeah. He goes, then I started shooting. He goes, well, can I shoot? And he started shooting, and he's like, well, why did I buy all this? I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know? He goes, well, I don't need all this. I already, you know. And then he went the complete hole, like, opposite direction. He went right out. He didn't even out with that bow. He got rid of it. And he went and he bought a recurve. Then he went to Longbow. Then he started making his own bows, making everything. You know? So he went to the whole other extreme. You know? So, and he's like, I understand why you don't out with that. I said, well, I guess... Sometimes in a hunting situation, I don't, you don't have time for technical evaluation. Sometimes you got to make the shot happen, like right now, you know. Let the instinct and, take over. Yeah, let the instinct take over. And I don't, I mean, I guess you can do with a compound. I don't know because so, I don't have any experience with that. So I guess it's like pheasant uh, on their bird on. You know, you're still gun up and make the shot type thing. So stop thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, when you were you're talking about that guy, not not necessarily of him saying why do I need all this, but taking down that road of it just building everything and doing it like John's over here going like, "Oh my gosh, like 
should I, should I, should I not? Because, I mean, like, you know, our listeners know, but John has a, 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 his own string jig here for making compound strings just because he got a bug up his butt one day and he was like, I, I think I can make a string. I watch a YouTube video on it. And yep. now he's made a hundred strings and, and cables yep. and contacted companies and, and all this stuff. So it's, it really is just a matter. And he makes, you know, furniture and, and all sorts of other things. Well, so it's yep, just a matter of time. Exactly. Yep. It's like anything you get into it or, you know, fly fishing or whatever it is, you know, the sky's the limit on it. It's all fun stuff, you know? Well, I mean, Jim, I think we could talk to you here for, you know, forever because like we've barely scratched the surface on all the things that, uh, you know, that, that you've encountered throughout your many years of, of bow hunting, but we've, you know, we're just over an hour here and we kind of covered the main points that we wanted to, to cover, but, uh, we definitely will have to do this again. Um, and, and, and we'll, we'll get some feedback on this and, and kind of circle back on a, a lot of this stuff, but I just really appreciate you taking the time and, you know, you know, thanks to Charles for, for connecting us because I mean, I could, listen to hunting stories all day long because i've got yeah. so many questions you know <laughs> well, it's been fun i really appreciate you guys having me on it's been a lot of fun sure so i think that's all we got for today um if you just want to hold on the line here we'll we'll wrap this up here real quick all right all right all right thanks Sit down. Sit down.